Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. From the blackest corners of your mind, they call, pulling you deep into shadow, twisting your senses, keeping you from sleep. It's time to face your darkest fears. This is Tales to Terrify. Good evening, children of the night, and welcome to our final episode of Women in Horror Month. It's been quite a ride so far, and my deepest thanks goes out to Meredith for spearheading our special features for the last month. It's been great to hear about a handful of female authors making a mark in the horror industry with their debut novels. I hope you get a chance to check them out. This episode also marks the end of our current flash fiction contest. Approaching the finish line, we've had a flurry of submissions. But depending when you listen to this episode, there may still be time to slide your masterpiece in under the wire. The contest closes at midnight central time on April 1st. No joke. Who knows? The winning tale of seasonal terror could be sitting on your hard drive right now, just waiting for you to click send. Don't disappoint. TalesToTerrify.com slash Flash Contest And for those of you curious about the winner, we'll be taking some time to review all of the submissions, rate them, and fight over which one takes home the top prize. Expect to hear more details in the next couple of months. Our deepest, darkest thanks goes out this week to Brian Veerling, the newest patron to join us behind the veil. Thank you from the bottom of our cold, dead hearts, Brian. Your support means so much to us and makes these stories not only possible, but that jolt of appreciation almost makes my fetid heart feel like it's ready to beat again. Almost. If you appreciate the show, why not join Brian in supporting us on Patreon? The support we receive from listeners is essential to the continued unlife of the show. It helps us capture the best talent in words and voices and give them the compensation they deserve for their work. Every dollar we raise goes back into this show. 
Plus, when the Elder Gods descend on our puny little planet, we promise to put in an extra good word for you. Patreon.com slash Tales to Terrify. Join us in the darkness and help protect your mortal soul. You won't regret it. Now, let me hand you one last time to our Mistress of the Macabre, Meredith Morgenstern, and let's see what final female frights she has to share. Good evening, children of the night, and welcome. Like Lori, Nancy, and Sydney, we've come to the final girl in our Women in Horror Month debut special. I hope you've enjoyed meeting these sinister sisters and have found some new books to keep you terrified all year long. Because Women in Horror Month doesn't have to end today. You can support Women in Horror anytime. If you need inspiration, check out Horror Spotlight. Nico Bell's list of feminist horror writers, and Jeremiah Dylan Cook's Women in Horror Month list. Links are in the show notes. This week's debuting author spotlight falls on Nichelle Giraldis and her novel, No Child of Mine, to be published in September by Poison Pen Press. Nichelle Giraldis has a BA from Colorado College, where she majored in religion and minored in mathematics. She lives in Denver. Let's learn a little bit more about Nichelle's debut, No Child of Mine. There's something in the dark, and it's starting to whisper. Essie Singh has defined herself by her ambitions, a fiercely independent woman whose only soft spot is her husband Sanjay. She never imagined herself as a mother. It was never part of the plan. But then she finds out she's pregnant. As her difficult pregnancy transforms her body and life into something she barely recognizes, her husband spends the nights pacing in the attic, slowly becoming a stranger, and the house begins to whisper. As Essie's pregnancy progresses, both her and Sanjay's lives are warped by a curse that has haunted her family for generations, leaving a string of fatherless daughters in its wake. When she's put on bed rest, Essie trades the last aspects of her carefully planned life for isolation in what should be a welcoming home, but she isn't alone. There's something here that means to take everything from her. You can buy No Child of Mine at Bookshop, IndieBound, Barnes & Noble, or Amazon. Links will also be in the show notes. And remember that you can help aspiring ghouls like Nichelle not only by buying these books, but with reviews on Goodreads, Amazon, and wherever else you lurk. And now, let's use the Ouija board to contact Drew for this week's stories. Thank you, Meredith. And thank you to each of the authors we've featured over the last five episodes. It's been a pleasure to share your firstborn frights on the show. And I hope you have found some excellent additions to your to-be-read pile. Children of the Night. And now that we've filled up your reading list, it's time we filled your nightmares, too. We've got three tales to share with you tonight, so let's get to it. Our first story for the evening comes from an author we learned about from Meredith the week before last, Ai Jiung. Ai Jiung is a Chinese-Canadian writer and an immigrant from Fujian. She is a member of the HWA, SFWA, and Codex. Her work can be found in F&SF, The Dark, Uncanny, The Puritan, Prairie Fire, The Master's Review, among others. She is the holder of Odyssey Workshop's 2022 Fresh Voices Scholarship. Her debut novel, Ling Hun, is forthcoming with Dark Matter, Inc. in April of 2023. That's right around the corner. Find her on Twitter at IJung underscore 
and online at igung.ca. Links are in the show notes. Children of the Night, join me for I Jiung's Dancing with Etta, first published in Maudlin House, October 2020. You would think that something attached to threads moves in a jerky manner, resembling Pinocchio's clumsy walk. But her movements are smooth and graceful, making her presence far more terrifying. She has no childlike naivety or innocence, and she has no desire to become human. At least to my knowledge, she does not. I am unsure of when she appeared, but when I noticed, it's as though she had been there all along like a familiar stranger, though she is far from a welcomed friend. I see her daily and have left her nameless until now. They say names create attachments, but I don't believe I will become attached, so I name her Etta. Wherever I go, Etta follows. She does not walk or trail behind me. Instead, she appears in each room I enter. We are inseparable, though not of my own choice, of course. The only place Etta does not follow me to is work. Yet I often find my mind drifting to Etta's skeletal figure, when I overhear the supervisor yelling at a co-worker for being incompetent. Etta's fingers click against my laptop keys when I take a break. I watch the tight, smooth, gray skin pull over each finger. The threads move each finger rhythmically across the squares. Only her fingers appear. The rest of her body is missing. I come home one night after drinking with co-workers. Etta sits by the stairs with her knees drawn together. She has one of her elbows propped on top of her knee. Her slim fingers cup the concave hollow of her cheek. Her shriveled purple lips are drawn together tighter than usual. I often wonder whether she is breathing. But I dare not check, for I fear the proximity. I imagine her breath is like the rotting flesh of molding meat I often throw at the end of the week. Does she have a tongue? Can she speak? Perhaps not. She has been quiet since the first day I saw her, hunched in the corner of my room, with threads attached to each body joint, and disappearing a meter or two into space above her head. Her head is left free, or so it seems. She resembles a small child in a grown body. I often feel the need to protect her, but I somehow know that I could not. I wonder who pulls her threads. Why does she follow me when I am not the one controlling her? At first I was afraid. What if I woke up to Etta's ghastly face looming over mine as I slept? What if I felt her breathing down my neck as I moved around the house? What if her raspy gasps mixed with the sound of the stove fan as I cooked? She does none of these things. Soon I lost fear in this once terrifying figure. She became something familiar. She is always in the same place in every room a designated spot. I never worry about her disappearing, because she never does. 
Sometimes Etta resembles a spider caught in her web. She pulls and pulls, but she never loosens herself from the threads. It is when I am eating this happens most. I lift my fork, pull, sink it into an excessive amount of pasta, pull, draw it to my lips, pull. The mouthful disappears in a second, although I do not chew it well enough. I am now used to Etta, but I always try to finish my meal quickly so I would not have to see her from the corner of my eye any longer. Etta becomes less graceful the longer she stays with me. She once looked like a dead bride as she glided down the halls. I always watch her through a small opening at the side of the front door before I enter the house. When I finally muster up the courage to open the door, she's suddenly sitting on the lowest step at the bottom of the staircase, waiting. Now her actions are jerky, and she no longer waits for me sitting in an upright position, but slouches over her knees instead. Some days I see her walking down the hall with each strand of hair attached to a new thread above her. Some days her hair is down. Some days she has no hair at all. Those are the days I dread the most. Her scalp either red or irritated in the way my scalp looks when it is peak season at work. There are needle-sized pricks indented in where the hair is supposed to be. I think the threads pull them out. But of course, aren't we all lucky that hair grows back quickly? Though this is especially true for Etta. Her hair grows back the following day. I can't decide if that is a blessing or a curse. One day I notice Etta appearing in different spaces around the house. I can no longer find her in her designated spot. Rather than the corner of my room, I find her sitting in a contorted position in my closet. I look at the snug sweater tangled in her threads. Etta is clutching the neckline of the sweater tightly between her skeletal fingers. I look away and see my usual opaque white dress shirt and formal gray slacks untouched by her. I shut the closet door, but not before my eyes meet her sockets. What little gray flesh Etta has on her is melting away. Only patches of both white and gray, bone and flesh, remain. On Friday night, I venture to release the snug sweater from Etta's grasp. I try not to touch her as I untangle the sweater from her threads. With a swift tug, I remove it from her fingers. Even as I arrive for a blind date at the bar, Etta now follows and stands right behind my date's head, staring at my sweater. I suddenly feel exposed and cross my arms over my chest for the rest of the night. My date returns none of my calls. Sometimes I wake in the middle of the night. I see Etta's threads pull upwards towards the ceiling whenever my phone lights up with another email from work. Her legs would dangle in the air. My throat closes because I think she is dead if she wasn't already. But then the threads loosen and Etta's feet are once again on the ground after I send a reply to the email. The next day, rather than my coworker, I am the one my supervisor yells at. Etta is behind my supervisor. Threads now pull, pull, pull at her head. Her hairs dip up and down with the skull. With each dip, a few strands of hair fall out, and the skin of her face pulls upwards, causing her features to become sharp and angular, but above all, grotesque. It seems as if she agrees with my supervisor and all the insults that he yells at me. I know she does not. They fired me that day. At night, Etta does something that she has never done before. She dances. 
She draws me in and forces me to dance with her. Gray, ashy hands in warm flesh clutch tightly, like how she clutched the neck of my sweater, and clutch tightly like the resignation letter held in my hands as I stood in front of my supervisor while he yelled a string of incoherent profanities. We twirl down the hallway, and as we dance, it appears to breathe life back into Edda. The bald spots sprout new strands of hair, and the missing parts of her flesh replaced with peach-colored skin. Though her cheeks are still concave, and her eyes are still hollow, her now full lips draw a closed-mouthed smile. When we stop, I do something that I never dared to do before. I take out the scissors hidden in my pocket, surprising Etta. I smile as I reach up and run the blade through all her threads. By now she must have accumulated millions. I expect her body to fall to the ground as the threads fall around her, but she stays standing amongst the pool of limp threads. My heart stops as I look above her head. The threads slowly rise to their original position. Etta shakes her head. She takes my hands in hers, the one with the scissors, and guides it above my head. I look up and notice the threads above me, tangled and threatening. My eyes widen as she mimics my previous actions and guides the blade across the threads. That was I. G. Jung's Dancing with Etta, as read by Amy Pownessa. Amy Pownessa has been the producer and host of The Bloodlust, a horror movie review podcast, since 2014. She has narrated stories for various other podcasts, including Knife Point Horror and the Alexandria Archives. She's thrilled to read for Tales to Terrify, especially because she credits the podcast with reigniting her love of horror fiction. You can contact Amy through her website, thebloodlust.net. Thank you, Amy. Our second tale tonight comes from friend and Tales to Terrify slush reader, Brooke Brannan. Brooke Brannan writes speculative fiction from a small village in England where she lives with her partner, Paul. She is working on an MFA from Manchester Metropolitan University, and her work can be found in Tales to Terrify, The Chamber, and The Disappointed Housewife. For more information, see brookbrannan.com. Listen with me, children of the night, to Brooke Brannan's Little Sister, a Tales to Terrify original. I will pick a fight with you to get you out of the way. It takes a week for the state background check to clear, and if I choose my words right, I can piss you off for at least that long. Long enough to carry out my plans. I always told you 28 was a magic number. When she left me, I moved out and gave away all my guns and tried to understand. I was a good man. I provided for her, treated her well. There were no other women. She didn't want me. Okay, all right, fine. I could almost understand it. I'm not an easy man to live with. But there was more to it, wasn't there? I tried to tell you what I saw in my head when I closed my eyes. 
I told you I saw bullets in the driveway, driven into the cracked concrete, making a large oblong shape roughly the size of a person. Those marks will be my legacy and my wife's. How did she think she could get away with it? And right under my nose, too. I told you how it felt, that I could either be the god of forgiveness or the god of vengeance. You said something about seeking the middle path, which is when I knew you would never understand. You've always been so earnest and good, you with your feminism and your college degree and your bloodless white husband, practically a neuter, up there in Seattle with the rest of the neuters. Here's what you never did understand. There is no middle path. There never has been. That kind of thinking is for little girls who everyone loves, not little boys who can't make their letters stay in between the lines or take back the rocks they threw or fix their mothers so their fathers won't leave. There is no middle path here. There is a wife who has shamed her husband by sleeping with the man next door. That's all. You won't see that, though. So I will drive you off so I can do what needs to be done. I will pick a fight with you, and then I will go and buy a gun. I will drive to the old neighborhood in the pre-dawn dark and park a half block down. I will watch until I know their routine. The beginning of her pain will be the end of mine. I love you, but you won't understand. You'll try to talk me out of it. So instead of telling you all this, I will send you a photo of my shadow, the one that makes me look like Anubis, since I am wearing the hat with the ears. I will always protect you, I write. I will always be there for you. I just don't say how I'll be there for you. Nightmare, cautionary tale, wake-up call, that's up to you. Today, I will set it in motion. We will fight. I will buy a gun. I will go to the old neighborhood and learn his habits. Namely, that he gets up early at six and she comes over for coffee. They drink it together on the front porch in full view of the neighbors. Out of all the things that are unforgivable about what she did, that's the worst part. How everyone knew but me. Everything is ready. I have the gun, and I have two clips, fourteen shots each, the last of which I will say for myself. There is no bullet for my wife. She'll live out her days knowing she's responsible for her lover's death. Little sister, forgive me. Little sister, this is the world. Little sister, get out of my way. That was Brooke Brannon's Little Sister, as read by our very own Andrew Gibson. Andrew was pulled feet first from the swamps of South Louisiana, kicking and screaming, and he remains mostly as such to this day. You can find his work on Audible under Andrew Gibson, or, for the more romantically inclined, Blake Lockhart. You can also catch him streaming his recording sessions live in The Narrator Nook and The Haven Discord servers. Links are in the show notes. Also, I mentioned a couple of weeks ago that Andrew's latest full-length audiobook narration is now available through Audible, Chad Ryan's Ghost River. If you haven't checked it out yet, I highly recommend you give it a listen. Link to that is also in the show notes. As always, thank you, Andrew. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. 
There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Our final tale tonight comes to us from Elizabeth Broadbent. Elizabeth Broadbent lives in Richmond, Virginia, with too many books, too many pets, three sons, and one very patient husband. When she isn't writing science fiction or southern gothic horror, she's listening to David Bowie or crafting with blue glitter. Lend me your ears, children of the night. For Elizabeth Broadbent's For Thine is the Kingdom, first published in the October 2022 edition of Sirens Call Easine. His oldest died first. Jubal early Raoul V, called five by everyone but his mother, spent a late night swinging moonshine with the Lernier boy, then picked up his car keys. He might have died of blood loss, or he might have died of a brain injury, the coroner said, or maybe he passed out before he hit that cypress tree. A mercy. Jubal early Raoul IV identified his son and turned away. They swept through his funeral, one of the hottest days of the summer. Men went red-faced in dark suits, and women waved fans from Lower Congaree's only funeral home. The clothed casket told everyone what five looked like, sure as if they'd parked him downtown as a freak show. Jubal remembered her as they threw dirt on his son's casket. She'd come on a day near as hot as that one walked barefoot off the road and down his curving driveway of live oaks. Beyond them, his long tobacco fields had grown thick and high and ready for harvest. Hired hands were cleaning out the curing sheds. A maid had seen her coming and said, It's that winter's girl. She's about to ring the bell, Mr. Rowell. He'd met her on his white, columned porch before she got a chance. He would intimidate her and she would go away. Simple. She wore a dirty dress and clutched two pale children, the spit image of five. No more than fifteen, and a young fifteen at that. He'd claim not to know her, even if everyone in Lower Congaree knew her. But he was Jubal Early Raoul IV, not some backwater tenant farmer, and he could pretend. What happened to my baby will happen to you and yours, she'd said. But no, Jubal shook it off. His daughter Bertie went next, childbirth. 
The midwife, Jane Merle, said every birthing woman looked on death's far shore, and the tide carried some away. It buried Bertie with her baby. Her husband, who came from trash, named it Rudolph Farrell Jr. No middle name, because he didn't have one. Women died in childbirth. Jane said so, and everyone agreed Jane knew things better than most. Women said she could help the hopeless. But that was much a superstitious nonsense as that skinny girl's rantings. Only a coincidence that Bertie passed one year after five. Coincidence, nothing more. Bertie's husband drank himself to death. By then they had Bertie's little Alice with them, and Jubal loved her best of all. She might have been called Pharaoh, but everyone agreed she was a rowel from top to toe. She'd tour the farm with him, her stout white pony keeping pace with his Tennessee walker. Granddaddy, she'd asked once as they trotted along the field's edge, the sun high, hot, and white. If I live with you, do I get to be a rowel now? He snorted. You should be. You mind your manners, eat without scraping your fork, ride side saddle, and put a bullet through a running rabbit's eye. You're eight years old, and I ought to buy you a string of pearls for your birthday. Alice had pursed her little lips, then said, I'd rather have a pair of pants. Little girls wear dresses and ride side saddle. She fixed him with an angry glare that everyone said looked just like his own. He could see it, too, those narrow green eyes, that long, slightly scrunched nose. I want pants. Don't be ugly, Alice, Jubal told her. The next morning, when her white pony appeared at the barn gate, its broken reins trailed in the dirt and a boy's saddle on its back. After two hot, frantic hours of sweat and worry, they found Alice in the far field. She wore a pair of pants she'd stolen from the maid's boy, and her open eyes stared blind at the sun. Jubal refused to leave his room for weeks. That skinny girl's face, pinched and hungry, mocked him whenever he closed his eyes. She'd stood barefoot on his spotless white porch, a baby in each arm. Neither had cried or whimpered, and their heads seemed too big for their bodies. You know whose babies these are, she said, flicking blondish hair from her forehead. This one here, he's sick. I only want what's mine. Jubal narrowed his eyes. Men like him didn't deal with low-class chippies like her. Get off my porch, he replied. I don't know those babies from Adam's house cat. She'd asked three times. The last time he told her to leave or he'd have his housekeeper run her off, then call the sheriff to lock her up. She'd cussed a blue streak. Her spit landed on his shiny white bucks, and before he could recover from that horror... Her angry eyes met his. And she said, I only want what's mine. You think my babies are trash, and trash don't deserve to live. You look and see where that trash came from. You look. What happens to my baby will happen to you and yours. What if? But life didn't work that way. Bad things happened, and a man lived with them. He didn't go blaming some slip of a thing who'd come round his front door, not even the back, and battered him with crazy talk after she spit at his feet. Lucas went the year after. Leukemia, the doctor said. Caught too late. A long death, and an ugly one. His boy went screaming. Delilah, his last, caught influenza. Influenza turned to pneumonia. She passed at a cold hospital surrounded by machines, and they knew she'd died because the machines stopped beeping. Jane could have helped her, his wife said. We should have had Jane come. Nothing Jane could have done, the hospital didn't, Jubal told her. What do you know? Lula began to cry. You don't know. Five, then Bertie, and Rudolph Jr., then Alice, Lucas, Delia, and Rudolf Farrow, if a person counted him, which Jubal sometimes did and sometimes didn't. 
all four children and two grandchildren dead in a span of six years. You help my baby. I only want what's mine. You know who he belongs to, and I'll have my rights. I swear to God I will. He'd crossed his arms and told her to go to hell. Those babies belonged to five, sure as if his son had said so. But goddamn if Juba was going to admit it. Boys will be boys, and those things happened. You didn't bring him round the front door. Three weeks after Delia passed, in a dining room gone gold with morning light, Juba wondered why the hell Lula was sleeping so late. She woke with the sun to drink black coffee and harangue the cook. He looked up from the state newspaper. Bella, he said to the maid, go see what Lula's about. Bella went upstairs. A minute later, she screamed, and he knew. Died of a broken heart, said everyone in Lower Congaree. Lost her sons, lost her daughters, lost her grandbabies, and couldn't stand to look at the world anymore. Jubal stood silent as they lowered her into that cold earth on the darkest day of the year. He refused to cry in front of God and everyone, and he succeeded, mostly. That family plot was full, too full, only room for him now under that brown grass. But who else was left? I only want what's mine. You look, what happens to my baby will happen to you and yours. He raised his eyes as the preacher, who thought too much of himself, dragged out the Lord's Prayer. And God damn if that girl, still string-bean skinny, wasn't staring at him from across his wife's open grave. She tilted her head at Lula's casket. The blonde boy at her side studied him. Who the hell do you think you are? Jubal roared. For thine is the kingdom, died in the preacher's throat. People whipped around to stare. Get out! Get out and don't come back! She was already gone. There was no such thing as a curse. He repeated it as they walked him into the church, sat him down in a vestibule, and gave him a glass of water. No such thing as a curse, he told them, even as their faces went blurry. He only saw hers, her sharp nose, her blue-green eyes, her thin lips. There's no such thing as a curse. They put him to bed for a week. Jubal stared at the wall, but what could he do? A man had to go on living. Eventually, he got up, bitter and angry, but nonetheless got up. And when his tobacco failed every year, he cussed and found an excuse. Not enough rain, too much rain, lazy field hands, late frost, he clung to those excuses, even as the lanyards and the nesmiths pulled in record crops. But they had better soil, better field hands, better seed. Good seed meant everything. Servants didn't stay long, and eventually he couldn't afford them anyway. Mary Joyner came in to cook, and Jubal stayed alone in that house full of echoes. He should have been the patriarch then seated at the head of a dinner table. Instead, he ate alone in the kitchen, and his beard grew white and wild. The children and the grandchildren are gone, and what was a life without a legacy? Blood was everything, and he had no blood left. But maybe something could be done. Something. Anything. And if anyone could do it, Jane Merle could. Women said she could cure sickness, and maybe a curse was a kind of sickness. He didn't leave the property anymore, but he asked Mary Joyner if she'd bring Jane over. Mary looked at him sideways. What do you want with Jane Merle? I want to talk to her is all. Nothing you need to talk to Jane about. She turned her back to the stove. Not your business if there is or there isn't. You bring her over here, Jubal said. Mary huffed and didn't answer. But that evening, as Jubal watched the sunset from his porch rocker, Jane walked up his drive. Once they'd kept it raked smooth. It had long gone to deep ruts with crabgrass grown up between them, 
and its live oaks were crowded by scrub brush and thorn sumacs. Jane didn't speak up until she'd climbed the steps. What seems to be troubling you? She asked politely, as if they'd met on a street, as if he wasn't barefoot or wearing a stained shirt. I'm cursed, Jubal said. No such thing. He narrowed his eyes. Don't lie. Who cursed you then? Jane crossed her arms. He told her about that skinny girl and her two babies. You didn't help her, Jane said flatly. Jubal stared at the sun. I chased her off. Whose babies were they? They were fives. I knew it then, and I know it now. He took a deep breath. It took all his pride to say it. But Jubal reminded himself he didn't have cause for pride. Not anymore. You know what happened after. They're all dead. My tobacco won't grow. My servants won't stay in hell. My damn horse colicked and died. I dream about her every night. It's a curse, and I hear you can lift curses. Little lie wouldn't hurt. I'll give anything. Jane looked at him hard. Anything, I swear. I want peace from him. You tell me that girl's first name. Jubal sighed. He had tried hard to forget, and he'd never said it, not once. Winters. It was that Winters girl. Will you lift it now? I just want peace. Write her name down first, and write down whose babies they were. I won't do it otherwise. Jubal heaved himself out of his rocker. His knee ached, but he went inside, found an old receipt, and wrote it. Caddy Winter's babies belonged to five. Everything had narrowed to one point, one simple sentence. As Jubal wrote it, he knew. He denied his own blood, and there was no greater sin. What happens to my baby will happen to you and yours. A man who refuses his own blood deserves nothing in this world or the next. He'd killed them all, every one, sure as if he'd used a knife and his own right hand. He gave Jane that old receipt. Jane nodded. When he sat again, she laid a hand on his forehead. He felt it like a sigh, a settling. Jubal blinked into the sun going down. Thank you, he murmured. Jane walked away holding that paper, something about a judge. Jubal's eyes closed, and he welcomed what was his. That was Elizabeth Broadbent's For Thine is the Kingdom, as read by Seth Williams. Seth Williams is the managing editor here at Tales to Terrify. He has narrated stories for Tales to Terrify, Far-Fetched Fables, and Starship Sofa. When not day-jobbing, he enjoys listening to fiction podcasts and audio drama. He shares life with an amazing partner, dog, and a cat. Thank you, Seth. Well, children of the night, the hour is late, and we've run out of tales to tell. For now. Tales to Terrify is made possible by the tremendous generosity of our supporters on Patreon and PayPal. Incredible fans like Amanda Carrillo, Amanda Gottfried, Kathy Robinson, Lessel Baxter, Orion D. Hegra, and Paul Belcher, whose generous support helps keep the lights on and flickering ominously. Not a supporter already? Head over to patreon.com slash tales to terrify, where you'll find all kinds of perks like ad-free episodes, bonus content, and one-of-a-kind collectibles and merch packs. Every dollar goes back into this show to make it as horrific as possible, and we appreciate it so much. Want another way to support the show that doesn't cost a cent? Head over to Stitcher, 
Podchaser, or Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review. You'll not only put an unnaturally wide smile on our faces, but help new listeners discover our terrifying tales, too. Why not share your love of the show out in the world with some Tales to Terrify merch? TalesToTerrify.com slash merch will take you to our Tee Public store, where we've got a great collection of creepy custom and curated designs that's always growing. Tales to Terrify is produced by Seth Williams, Meredith Morgenstern, Andrew Gibson, and myself, Drew Sebastini, with original theme by Nebulous Entertainment. Tales to Terrify is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Join us again next week as we embrace the swirling darkness with more Tales to Terrify. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 